like everybody or most people, we got impacted. But I think the difference for us, we had to just reframe what this meant. We had a couple of calls, and I think when it was locked down, Zoom calls, the management team and our direct report stack, we had a big call and we decided that this is going to be an opportunity. It's not going to be a disabler, it's going to be an enabler. And during that time, we actually put out more products than we've done in the last two years. We saw it as an opportunity. There are no distractions now. We're going to be so focused on delivering an output. This is our only priority. Put out these products. And we worked so well and efficiently that now we're just planting the seeds and we're going to bear the fruits of what we've done during the lockdown period. So. Hello and very, very big welcome to the Elevated Entrepreneur Podcast. My name is Diren and this is your first time here. I'm so glad and I'm so grateful that you've chosen to spend some time with the Elevated Entrepreneur Podcast. Now, if you haven't already, I'd love for you to check out the Elevated Entrepreneur website, which is elevatedentrepreneur.fm, where you can get access to all of the amazing shows as well as the goodies that go with each show, including show notes and transcriptions. I'm so happy that you're here because this is the very first episode of a special series called Food Brands. There are some amazing food brands that are born right here in the UAE and I want to share their stories with you and inspire you to do what you've been wanting to do, whether it's launching a business or an idea that you've had for a while. There are some amazing stories that we want to bring to the platform and I hope that you will enjoy this episode. Now, this particular episode is with a phenomenal gentleman. His name is Roy and he founded the brand Freakin' Healthy. Freakin' Healthy started off as a healthy snack brand and they have done phenomenally well over the last few years. And this story is all about how Roy started and what got him to start something that was his passion. I hope you'll enjoy the episode. There is so much for you to listen in. So please take a moment, grab your headsets, grab a coffee and let's cue the music. You're listening to the Elevated Entrepreneur Podcast, a podcast designed to help retailers, restaurateurs, and entrepreneurs simplify business operations and use modern technology to elevate their business. Here's your host, Darren Batia. Hey, Roy. Welcome to the Elevated Entrepreneur Podcast. It's so nice having you here. Hey, Darren. My pleasure. Thank you. I know you're a busy man and I appreciate you being on the show. There's so much to talk about. But before we get into Freaking Healthy, you and I have a common story. You're Canadian. I'm Canadian. You went to study in Montreal, correct? Mm-hmm. And how many years were you there in Canada for? The family moved to Montreal in 87. I think we spent around 16 years in Montreal. Wow. If you ask me, like, where am I from? I would probably... I simulate more with Montreal than the rest of the countries I lived in. But yeah, so that was like my upbringing. You get into all the kinds of North American sports, especially hockey. Yeah, well, I'm a big Maple Leafs fan. I'm from Toronto. I stayed in Toronto for about 16 years myself. So yeah, we've got a lot to talk about other than hockey. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. But I know you've lived in many, many countries around the world. You just talked about it a little bit. Tell me, how did you get started? Where were you born? So I'll give you a bit of background. Both my parents are Lebanese, so I'm Lebanese by origin, right? But in the late 70s, we had a pretty bad civil war in Lebanon. So my dad used to work in Saudi Arabia. So I was born in Saudi, in Al-Khubar. And from there on, my dad 
traveled quite often. He was in the travel industry. He worked for one of the big multinationals in the travel industry. So we moved quite a lot. I think the next country I moved to was the Philippines. And after the Philippines, we globetrotted quite a bit. We moved to Holland for a few years. And then we moved back to Saudi. And then we actually lived in Beirut for maybe a year or so. And then eventually back to Saudi Arabia and landed finally in Montreal in the late 80s. So quite a lot of traveling. We'll talk about it later, but I think that added a lot to the way I perceive different cultures and what I take from them. So how old were you when you landed in Montreal, finally? I was 11. High school and college and then university. So they have this college system in Montreal. So I moved there when I was 11 and my brother and I were actually pushed up a grade because we were under like a different system, the British system. So everyone in my class at that time was like a year to two years older than me. It was quite interesting to learn the ropes coming from the Middle East into North America at the age of 11. So do you remember any of your time in Holland and Philippines? It sounds like you were really young then. I was very young. I remember a few things about the Philippines, more so in Holland. The Philippines was quite nice. But I think most of my memories stem back to like looking at pictures. It wasn't really from actual memory. But what I remember about the Philippines is, I mean, at that age, I don't think you have any issues. We had uh, a nice life, swimming pool, a lot of outdoors, and that's about it. Holland, on the other hand, was very nice. My recollection is we actually went to Dutch school, so I learned Dutch when I was years old. Also, like a smaller house, colder climate, a lot of pastures and greenery. So I remember that. And I remember, so the reason my dad moved to Holland, he wanted to look at the family getting the Dutch passport. But I think at the end, he decided, let's go to North America. Let's do Canada. That's why we ended up in Montreal in 87. Beautiful country, beautiful city, Montreal. And you went to Concordia, correct? I did. So I went to the business side of Concordia. It's called the John Molson School of Business. I studied there. And to be honest, growing up there, life was great, you know, and you don't know how good you have it until you kind of leave the area. It's built for families, the outdoors, activities, sports. You never rested. You're always doing stuff, activities with your friends. Every community had a park. In the wintertime, they would flood the basketball courts into ice rinks and you'd play hockey with your friends. You know, you're always active. So those are the things I would miss. I know exactly what you mean. I left Toronto in 2016, and I know exactly what you mean in terms of greenery, the nature. It's beautiful to live there. So you moved back to Dubai, is it in 2003? Exactly, 2003. My brother moved here before me. My family also was in and out of Dubai. So my dad lived in Dubai for a long time. My uncles lived here. So my brother moved here, and he worked with my uncle for a year. And he calls me up and tells me that I need to come to Dubai. Dubai is the place to be. And how old were you when this call happened? Should have been like 21, 22. Okay, so he calls you and says, you need to come to Dubai. You need to come here. You know, I've been here on a visit and visiting is different than living here. So when I came here on my first few visits, it was quite nice. Probably 2000, 2002, I've been here a couple of times. Not much happened. Everybody knew everybody. A couple of major hotels, roads. And in 2003, I think things were starting to develop. And I came here with no job prospects, just landed. And <laughs> funny, just remembering these things. At the time, I, I actually lived in my brother's apartment on his sofa. I didn't have any income, so I had stayed on his sofa for probably a year while getting my life sorted career-wise. 
So you've got this call, and I presume you finished university by now. So you've gotten this call, you're in Dubai, you're sitting on your brother's sofa. <laughs> what happens next? So what happens next is like I needed to find some source of income right away. I actually went door to door to like big multinationals handing in my resume at that time. It was like phone calls, who's your HR, get the contact. I had this massive Excel spreadsheet. I would go there, drop it off. And I'd have like this routine with follow-ups, their comments, yes, no. Most were very positive on the first interaction, but no one would get back to you. But one company did. And I went to their head office, who was at the trade center at the time. I think I went through like three or four rounds of interviews and I landed the job there. This is where you pretty much picked up sales techniques because you're calling people, you're followed up, you've made notes. It's phenomenal. And what company was this that you started working for back in 2003? That was Johnson & Johnson. And you stayed with them for how many years? Until 2017. Wow. It was quite the ride. Almost what they call a lifer. <laughs> it was a lifer, to be honest. Time flew so fast. It was year after year. And because I joined a small franchise, it was like the vision correction franchise, like vision care. It was a very small team running the Middle East region. So there was a lot to do. So it felt very entrepreneurial because you had your hand in many things. You know, with a small team, your role kind of blends and molds into other functions. So you do a bit of this, you do a bit of that. So then you get promoted and one thing leads to the other and you lose track of time and you're just like growing with the company. And then you have to kind of pause and say like, is this my future? Yes, and I want to get into that. So you're obviously very comfortable here. You've done phenomenally well for yourself. I know that you were general manager. You were running quite a bit of things at, at Johnson & Johnson. And then in 2017, you started Freaking Healthy. What happened? Why did you hit pause? It wasn't one specific day. I think it was maybe a year or two. I don't know what, what, what you want to call it, whether it was like my age at that time. But I was really looking at, is this where I want to be? Is this where I want to kind of drive the next five to 10 years of my career or my life? And it wasn't. I don't want to knock multinationals. I think you learn a lot and they're absolutely perfect for many people. They can build a wonderful life there. But it just wasn't what I was looking for. It wasn't where I saw myself in the next five, 10 years. And mainly I would look at, let's say, my seniors or my managers and I'd say, I wouldn't want to be in that position. Although like for some people, that is where they wanted to kind of get to. But for me, it wasn't that. And there was this like entrepreneurial itch that I had to scratch. And whether it's innate in me or it just grew in the last few years, I had to do it. And I was just getting a bit despondent at work. It was just the same old. To the point where I actually shifted divisions just to reignite the enthusiasm. And that also didn't really work out. And now you said your dad used to work and was he an entrepreneur himself? He was, I think, in the last maybe 10 years of his life. So at the beginning, he was also with a big company. Funny, yeah. And then the last few years, when he moved to Montreal, actually, he opened up his own travel business there. Is that why you think you decided to follow in his footsteps? Is that where you draw inspiration from? Or was it something more... You're like, no, I got to get out of this. Yeah, good question. So if I was to look back, my brother is also very entrepreneurial. And funny enough, he's also working for a big multinational company. But when we were 11 and 12, when we first got to Montreal, I remember we would, I think the first or second winter, we started shoveling snow. Obviously, you know how it is, right? You have to shovel your driveway. You have to shovel snow. Otherwise, you're going to be stuck. So we used to shovel our driveway. And then we had this idea to go and shovel the neighbor's driveways and make some money. 
I think by the time we were like six weeks into it, and we didn't know it at the time, but we started outsourcing. So we got other kids from the neighborhood and we would pay them a cut and we'd ask them to also shovel their respective driveways around the neighborhood. I think it was by coincidence or by chance, but that was pretty much how we got started. And then in the summer times, we started cutting grass, same model. And we had, I mean, since 11, 12, I was, did something in the summers, delivering newspapers, you name it. And I think that's where it started. So you've got the entrepreneurial bug since a very young age then. I would say so. I think, you know, my brother is the one that really ignited that. But yeah, since then, it's always been there. But I think dormant because things were moving pretty quickly in the corporate world, right? So you kind of forget about it. And how old were you in 2017 when you started Freaking Healthy? Almost 41. So you're 41. You've got this dormant bug that's come alive again. <laughs> and you say, I want to start Freaking Healthy. I'm obviously oversimplifying it. But I know what you mean. And I want you to talk about sort of the reason and the passion. And that's what I'm heading with. Is to ask you, what made you really start Freaking Healthy? I think it's not one thing. It's a number of things. So let's put aside this entrepreneurial bug. In the last few years of my career in the multinational industry, I always considered myself to be pretty healthy. I always exercised. I thought I ate well. But I found in the last year, more specifically, I started getting really bad insomnia. I would also get brain fog quite often. And I would feel very lethargic. And I couldn't really pinpoint what the issue was. And I started reading a lot. I started reading about nutrition, diet. And mind you, I was eating healthy. I wasn't like a junk food kind of guy. But I think there were some things in my diet that were leading to that. And I just lost the spark to kind of drive and be passionate about something. I mean, without that passion, it's just a mundane job. And I just hated that. I went in, I did my job. It was like performance, but it wasn't passionate. It was really missing. And what I was really passionate about was like how to find my health again from physical, mental, and nutrition perspective. I was really had to find it. And I jumped into a lot of reading, a lot of books, a lot of research online. And more so, I was really looking at something that would be my center and my passion. And healthy eating and snacks was one of the ways to enter it. And I've always been a snacker. I love snacks. Whether it's in the mid-afternoon or morning or close to evening, I would snack. But at that time, I would snack on some things that were perceived to be healthy, but they actually weren't. And I think that also led to a lot of the crashes in energy and brain fog, etc. So that was one of the things. The other one was quite an interesting conversation I had with my wife. So I had thrown that idea around a few times with her about starting my own business. And again, during it, I'm not advocating leave everything and start your own business. This was planned. So those two years of planning financially, because again, with a family and responsibilities, you can't just say, oh, tomorrow I'm leaving and I have no idea how we're going to survive. So there was a couple of years of savings and plannings. But I think the key was a nicely phrased question by my wife. It was, if you don't follow your dreams, what message would that send our kids? It was a very like straightforward question, but I thought about that question and I said, this is an important um, moment or milestone for me to define what it means to follow your passion. Whether you fail or you succeed, it's important to actually make that decision. It was also the reassurance from my wife that the family have their support. And that's super important, right? You can't get much far without that sort of commitment and that sort of support system. You need that support system, especially 
when you're starting something on your own. So you were into healthy eating. You started to notice some lethargic times in your day. And I'm a big snacker myself, so I know exactly what you mean. I'll jump for the cookie jar almost every three hours. But what I want to understand from you is how did you go from that to coming up with this idea of a food brand? I mean, in my pastime, I'm pretty strange. Like if I want to recharge and watch something, I usually watch cooking shows. I don't know why. And I'm not a very good chef. I'm not a very good cook, but I just enjoy it. So initially, we started out by, I had in mind a much bigger food concept. So it was not really snacking. And again, I think nutrition drives a lot, right? That drives a lot of the cognitive behaviors and also drives a lot of peripherals around that. So for me, it's like, okay, let's start with this one. Because physically, I was pretty much in shape. I would work out, I'd go for runs. That was great. I was missing, I guess, the right nutrition. I was also missing the mental health part. And I'll get into that later. So for me, food was important. And also, it was very frustrating to see brands in the market that were perceived as to be healthy, but were not, either from an ingredient perspective, or they're too expensive, or they were positioned in a way where it wasn't attractive for me to like actually get into the category, or they were perceived as to be elitist. So that was a bit frustrating. And that was an easy approach for me to say, let me approach it from this way. And let me look at snacks first, and then we'll see how we expand it into F&D later. And they say, right, the best business ideas come from when you spot a need. And I think you saw that need in the market. So you've come along the last few years of your career at J&J. You're thinking about starting something. So it's now 2017, and you've spoken to your wife. You've got the support you needed, and you launched Freaking Healthy. What was the first year like when you launched Freaking Healthy and you quit your full-time job? The first year was okay. So we actually launched officially in 2018. There was a lot of work to be done. So 2017, let's say March, April, that was like, okay, I gave myself a month to just like reset mentally and reset my plan, like what I wanted to do. And actually my plan didn't even work out. So I really wanted to open up a kitchen, open up a factory, manufacturing facility. And I ran the numbers and I was almost ready to sign. But then I was introduced to who is today also my business partner here in BNB, Bilal. Introduced to him and obviously outsourcing made more sense at that time than opening. And I was like, I'm not the expert in production. I'm not the expert in procurement. And also don't want to spend all that overhead and capital. So let me just start it out by outsourcing. So that was the first, I think, six to seven months, like understanding how I'm going to work and working on recipes. Working on recipe part took a long time. So I collaborated with a couple of chefs. We worked through recipes that first few months, tastings with friends over to our house. We had probably like 60 to 70 different recipes, and we just narrowed it down to only four in the first year, just four recipes. So that was quite laborious. And I had to like think about it. I came from a very structured 16 years in multinational. I had to like shed a bit of that. And I think that's what's been happening over the last few years, like shedding that structure, I think more like intuition and needed to be put into entrepreneurship at that time. So it took a bit too long, but we were happy with our four recipes. Did you have a team in March, April when you started Freaking Healthy, when you were doing the testing and the recipes? No, no, no team. So just Bilal and yourself and some chefs? So Bilal came in, I think, late 2017. But before Bilal, it was just a couple of chefs family and friends and they would be like the market tastings and we do it in our house that was it and when i met bilal i would bring him samples and we'd taste in the office and we'd make adjustments together 
until one fine day, I think we saw the same vision and we decided to partner up on Freedom Healthy. And what was that vision? Because when you're starting something so big and you're still just in infancy, it's very important to see that big picture. What was that big picture for you? So again, we really saw that the market here, there was still a lack of awareness first about what healthy is from like food and F&B perspective. I think we saw also the consumers getting more and more educated. And that was an opportunity for us to say, we need to take the lead on this, okay? I think we had four barriers in mind. First barrier, we think that people have a very ill-informed or misconception about healthy food, that healthy food is tasteless and it's boring. You know, if I tell you, like, Darren, I'm going to prepare this healthy meal for you, you might think it's going to be tasteless and, like, there's really not excitement around it. So we wanted to break that, and we saw that as a big opportunity. Secondly, we also saw that a lot of health brands had this, like, elitist tag to them. So it's only the ones that can or the ones that are in the know that can afford or can get their hands on healthy food. And we found it extremely frustrating. And that's why the name Freaking Healthy breaks that barrier. We want it to be a bit edgy, fun, and also like appeal to more people. We want it to be a bit in your face, not like the common health brands around. And the third one is availability. I think now you see many health brands available, but back four years ago when I was maybe writing the plan, not much. You couldn't find healthy sites in too many places. So we want to be ubiquitous. And lastly, you like it, you can find it, and it appeals to you, but you can't afford it. What's the point? So we want it to really be on the right price value proposition. So that's the opportunity we saw. And we're like, we're going to build something great. I'm telling you, like, I don't know who's more passionate now. It's like me, Bilal, or Mohammed, who's also Bilal's co-founder partner of the B Group, or our team. It's insane. Like, I think our team has more passion than I do now. They kind of block bad ideas before they even reach our table. And they come up with even amazing ideas before we even brief them. This is amazing. And that's quite the legacy, right? When you have your team share your passion, share your vision, you know you've done something right, which is phenomenal. I think so. It also drives more passion. It drives more excitement. You know, when I see that, I get so happy. It's just amazing. Every day, I get surprised. Like people from accounting coming up with like, why don't you do this? That's a good idea. Or someone from the design team. Like, I think this is better for the brand. Like, it's just nice. It's beautiful. See? And it's a big weight off your shoulders, no? Where you don't have to do all of that thinking. Your team is doing that for you. And they're for a united cause, really, which is to spread healthy food, healthy snacks. So I want to take you back to 2017. You've come up with these four recipes and you've talked to Bilal and Bilal says, yes, we see this vision. Was the name Freaking Healthy ready then? Is it something that you had before in mind or did it come up? Yeah, it was ready. I mean, I probably shortlisted 20 names, but I think the one that resonated most with me and people I spoke to was freaking healthy. If you think about it, it was a bit of an oxymoron, like freaking and healthy. And that like marriage really stood out. And I really wanted to push the envelope a little bit. I wanted people to kind of stop and say like, really? That's what you're going to call the brand? And, and actually it worked. Like you said, it's a very informal, in-your-face kind of brand. And I think that spawned a lot of conversations. So. You've got these four recipes, you've got the name down pat. What happens next? And was it overnight success? No, no, it was not. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't overnight success. So I moved industries. I was in healthcare, I moved to F&B. And secondly, working in a multinational, you have so many support functions, right? You have everybody around you. Your teams are ready to execute when you start your own business. 
you have nobody. You have yourself. So I had to learn quite quickly. But was it an overnight success? No. The lesson that I learned very early on is when we create something in a kitchen, it's very different putting it into production from all aspects, from composition, from flavor, from texture, because then if you're going to scale it, it's not going to be the same. So you have to keep that in mind. And I didn't get that lesson at the beginning. We had to work through it. Also, Bilal had the same vision. We started that health category together. So we had to also look at sourcing healthier ingredients. It was also a learning curve with the team. So the team really had to also understand what is healthy and what is not from a green perspective. What's the taste profile? What's the quality spec we're looking for? So we had so many tastings, even after the final recipes that we created with the chef were approved. We had to do another long set of approvals just to make sure they're ready to be produced on scale. So you mentioned this already that you moved from healthcare to healthy food and you have no previous knowledge, no previous training in this. So how did you know where we were headed? How did you know if you were on the right path? And how did you learn all of this stuff? There's a lot of things. So I would talk to whoever would listen. I would ask a million questions, especially the chefs I work with. I learned a lot. I would ask them to send me articles. I would learn about ingredients. I would learn about all kinds of like glycemic indexes and what works with what, this mixture. And also like the guys here, Bilal's team and Hamid's team, were very well versed in production and kitchen. So I would also lean on them for expertise. But then, I mean, that's what I mean. If you're hungry and you have the passion, you will absorb. You are there to listen. And I think that's the key. If there was no passion and hunger, I think it would have been like, forget it, it's too tough. I don't know this. But you wanted, I just wanted to absorb all this information. I think the key word there is the passion for doing something that you wanted to do will sort of make you like a sponge, right? You're just going to ingest all of this information coming at you. And it doesn't feel like work then. No, no, I mean, and people like say that, but I think they miss the point. If you're not passionate about something, I think the first major obstacle will knock you out of the game. You'll be like, you know what? Forget it. I tried. It's over. But like, if there's some deep passion, nothing's going to stop you. You will figure out a way. You will find a channel or a road to get you to your path. And I think that's the difference. When people are like, you know, I have to find something I'm passionate about. And I don't know if I'm passionate about this or that. You will find out. If something hits you in the head or in the face, if you make it, if you get up and drive again, you're really passionate. You're trying to go, you're going to get the answer. And that was clear at the beginning. Yeah, and I think that's a big lesson there too, right? Is If you have the passion, it'll give you the motivation to move forward, despite the setbacks. So you've come up with this amazing idea. You've figured out there's a need for healthy eating, non-elitist healthy eating. I like that. And you've come up with this whole recipe. You've got your chefs. What was your first setback after you've launched this amazing idea? After we launched, so our first customer was in May, let's say May 2018. That's how I was our first customer. It was like actually a local gym here in Dubai. So our first setback was, okay, this business needs to be a volume driven business. But on the flip side, you also need to build that brand equity. I think some of the major advocates or ambassadors of the brand were not necessarily going to buy you from modern trade. They're probably going to find you in small gyms or coffee shops. So I think that waiting game for the brand to pick up that equity was quite a wake-up call because I thought, okay, this is going to work out from the first couple of months. We're going to be everywhere. People are going to love it. But it takes time. It does take time. And that's something that in hindsight makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it will take time. But coming from a multinational that already has a multi-billion dollar brand, you kind of forget that 
someone has to build that equity. So that took a bit more time to actually build. And to be honest, like at the beginning, people were a bit resistant also to a healthy snack. We got a lot of no's. We got some yeses, but people were like, yeah, we're not sure about this category yet. It's not big enough. So there was a lot of challenges at the beginning. You know, I think I was so enthusiastic that maybe most customers would just put us on the shelf because of the excitement that I was delivering rather than conviction that this is the product they need. But eventually that worked out. Consumers actually asked for the product. Amazing. I'm sure that's a great feeling, right? When the consumers ask for that product by name. I'm sure you're like a proud parent. This episode of the Elevated Entrepreneur podcast is brought to you by Cloudscape and Cloudscape's many different products designed specifically for retail and restaurant business owners. If you are considering opening a retail or restaurant business or maybe have one already and are looking to solve technology problems, then let's speak because we can give you a helping hand and make sure that you're set up for success. For more information, check out cloudscape.ae or get in touch by emailing us at hello at cloudscape.ae. As an entrepreneur, I know there are times when you're elated, when every little success is worth celebrating. And we've talked about a setback. I want to talk about your first victory. So what happened at a particular point in time? You said, you know what, we're going to make it. Did you see it coming? I mean, look, I really started this to make it happen. It wasn't really an option not to make it. But definitely there were moments where I'm like, this is going to be tough. I might not make it or this might not make it. Was there a specific moment where like, yes, this is going to happen? I don't think so. I don't think I still have that today. I don't think we've arrived. I don't think I have that 100% security that we've made it. And I think it's important not to have this. I don't want to be complacent. And I think you have to deliver every single day for your consumer and for your stakeholders and your partners. So I don't think we've arrived. So it's continuous. There's so many things we still have to achieve. But the moment we got into one of the big modern trade or supermarkets, I think that was it. Okay, we've got some traction here. That was reassuring because that also brought everything that we've been working on together. And we're like, now we're on the shelf in one of the major retailers. So at least we're there. But then that's only when the work starts. <laughs> You're on the shelf. Good for you. How are you going to sell your product now? Move it. Amazing. Absolutely. So I want to take you back in time one more time, because for me, I think one of the key things is that team that you've built. And like you mentioned earlier, you put a phenomenal team. So apart from you, Bilal and Mohammed, who was the next team member? Just to map it out. So BNB Group is a big operation. They're a big manufacturer. We still, as freaking healthy, we use a lot of shared services. So we rely on a lot of like shared services from accounting, finance, operations, etc. The first dedicated person to our brand was Karan, actually. But before that, we had many, many other people from BNB pitching in. We had the R&D team, we have the design marketing team, but shared. Like I said, I felt the passion from every single one of them. And some of them that have no say in, let's say, R&D or production came out with our best products. The real value here is as someone who's also like leading, you need to make sure you hear them. You hear and you listen to what they're saying because I think those are the golden nuggets that a lot of people miss. And for me, it's like, really, they said something that might work. They're closer maybe to the market or they see a need that I don't see. And we've taken that and we've developed it further. Yeah, it's about shared perspectives. How big is the team now? 
so it's you and Karan Same. and a lot of <laughs> and other people. <laughs> yeah, but again, I think now more and more we're getting a bit more weight, you know, in freaking health from the shared perspective, you know, which is good. And I think that's a very interesting model, right? Especially now with COVID, and we're going to get into that later on about COVID. But I think the model that you've worked on is what most companies aspire to now. This idea of shared services, pooled resources makes a lot of sense. So kudos to seeing that and making that stick that way and making it happen that way. Yeah, I don't want to take credit for it. It was also the partner's idea and also it was born out of necessity. Like our PL can handle it. So obviously you had to go for shared services. Plus the services were available. You had that expertise there. Why would you say no to that? So it made sense from also a financial perspective. Right. So you mentioned that you had times when you were thinking, this is not going to happen. What kept you going? Was it that vision or was it anything else that kept playing in your mind? No, so for sure it was the vision. And again, really passionate. There was a real big goal we wanted to achieve. And for me, there were no bridges to kind of fall back on. I wanted to burn all bridges before I started. That's it. This is the one-way path. Because otherwise... Then you're like, you know what? I do have a plan B. By the way, I do have a plan B, but we're not going to even think about plan B. But for me, it was no matter what, this is where we're going. And I remember an early discussion, Bilal, Mohammed, and I, they said, things will get tough. Things are not going to be easy, but we commit to actually keep going and driving the brand and driving our mission. Because I think a lot of people enter into partnerships, but then later, fizzle out or there's disagreement. But if you scope it this way, like I understand we're not going to agree on a lot of things. We're going to have some conflict. We're not going to agree on specific strategies, but we all are driving the same mission. And I think setting that at the beginning as the placeholder, it gives confidence. No matter what, I know they have my back and I'm always definitely supporting. I love that. I think there's a huge lesson there in, in being united towards a common goal when you're that passionate and you have that one nice shared goal to follow, I think everybody lines up. And sure, like you said, everybody has different opinions. But if you're behind that one goal, it all works out in the end. So it's 2018. You've got yourself now in a big supermarket. You've come home. And did you ever tell your wife about the question that she asked you? Did that ever play back in your head ever after that moment? Yeah, for sure. That's something I always think about. You know, when things do get tough, I do think about that question. And that gives me the conviction to really drive forward. You know, my kids are young and they see how hard we work because my wife is also an entrepreneur. And you might think they're not paying attention, but they are. And they see how passionate they are. Like I talk about freaking healthy every day and my kids talk about it. And that's something that's really important for me to kind of show them that this was just an idea, a concept, because everybody has ideas. And I'm sure like dozens of people had the same idea, but it's just about putting that first step forward and executing. That's the toughest part. And it's a big lesson. It's interesting that you're talking about this. One of the thoughts I always have in my head is what discussions and what conversations do kids of entrepreneurs have at their dinner tables, right? Because there's this book, I don't know if you've read it, uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad, and it talks about the lessons you learn in your life are a sum total of what you picked up from your parents over time and your dinner table discussion. And what you just talked about is so important. If they see this level of passion and they see this, hard work that you're putting in, they're going to learn a lot from it. And they're going to take that, even without you knowing, into so many parts of their life. So this is very interesting, something that I've always been intrigued by. I'm sure we're from pretty similar cultural backgrounds, you know, and I think that when we grew up, our parents wanted us, they already kind of pigeonholed our careers. You're going to be X, or you're going to be Y. 
for me and my wife, we didn't want to do that. It wasn't about giving them the career direction. It was more giving them the tool set to make their own decisions, but really be successful and happy with what they were doing. And I think that's the message we want to relate to our kids. Like whatever you want to do, be passionate about it and make sure you just follow it. Don't worry about whether it's deemed as an esteemed role or job or something that someone else wants to just do what you want to do. And look at me. I've done that. I was in a multinational and I was like sitting pretty. And I actually pushed that away for starting like a snack brand. Who would do that? But that's the lesson I want them to learn. Follow your dreams and your passion and things will happen for you. Yeah, absolutely true. Again, we come back to that idea that you have to have the passion and see this thing through. Because a lot of people, I think, either get inundated with the fear or they just don't even start because the fear debilitates them. So that's a great lesson to pass on. So coming back to freaking Healthy, it's 2018. You've got yourself in a major supermarket. What happens next? Okay, so what happens next is then the reality hits that, okay, we're on the shelf. We need to move the brand off the shelf. There's a lot of marketing and activations that need to happen. So you've been in any supermarket aisle. There are hundreds of brands. Why is someone going to pick yours off the shelf? So we had to do a lot of markets. We kind of filled the calendar with like those kind of like ripe markets. So I would go there personally. And the intention was really not like selling. It was more getting oriented with consumers, introducing the brand. Although that was a small minority, but then that we saw scale. So people would come to the stand, we'd talk about freaking healthy, we're going to find it, you can go here, you can buy it there. And that started to build. And then we got into a bit more social media was pretty recent. I think it was last year, social media, Google ads, SEOs, and that started to create. But back in 2018, it was about how are we going to get our products into people's hands for them to try? Activations, sampling, markets, be everywhere. Like anyone that was willing to open their doors for us to sample, we were there. Weekends, weekdays, nights, mornings, you name it. We did a lot of activations. That was important. I just want to highlight something here. So for a lot of my listeners, they may not know what a ripe market is. So this is your idea of your farmer's market like we have in North America. It's pretty huge as a brand. And so when you're saying that you got into ripe, that was a pretty good moment, I'm sure, to get into say, yeah, that we went into ripe. Yeah, that was pretty good. Like farmer's markets, you know how it is, like morning to night, talking about your product, your brand. And again, the difference in doing it just to tick the box and doing it because you're passionate is day and night. I'll promise you, probably out of 100 people, maybe two people would approach the stand. But when you're passionate, probably like 80 people would approach the stand because you're out there, you're greeting them, you're pulling them in, you're joking with them, you're giving them samples, you're engaging. And people are, at the end of the day, are like, you know what? They're only human. This guy's put effort. He's passionate. Let me try the product. And they would buy. And to be honest, that ripe market or farmer's market made us change a couple of formulas for recipes because of feedback. We'd get consumer feedback and we'd actually come back and say, you know what? We've heard this a few times. Maybe we should change that. And we did. And we've changed recipes based on the feedback. So it's win-win. Wow. And you were at all of these ripe markets yourself or did you have a team? At the beginning, I was at all of them. And then once we had a team, I would also go. But at some point, I had to also focus on other things. But during, I love being in front of the consumers. You gain so much insight. Sitting behind a computer, what kind of insight? I'm looking at, look at spreadsheets and analyze. But talking to people and engaging and getting their feedback is priceless. And I think what you're saying is absolutely correct. I have a small story to share 
with you. I don't know if you know this. So Karan and I, our mutual friend, we go running together. And usually one of the things we do after we run is we go for breakfast. And so we were at a breakfast joint a few weeks ago and we saw Freaking Healthy, the kid snacks that you guys launched. And he was just beaming with joy. He was just fascinated. He goes, I'm so proud. And I wanted to share this story earlier when you were talking about the fact that your team is more passionate than you are. But I think I want to say this now because it's not only just the passion itself, but it's also the feedback. He's asking me and he's asking all of our friends, what do you think about it? What did you like? So what you're saying is absolutely correct. Asking your customers and taking that feedback back to the table is priceless. You get so much from your customers. 100%. I mean, look, again, not every feedback warrants change, but I think you'll tend to understand it when you hear it. Maybe rephrase, but in many different kind of ways, then you're like, okay, something is kind of relevant. Let's make a decision on that. Let's try it out. But I mean, just yesterday, I was having also a coffee with a friend and I got feedback on some of the products. You know, just like, listen, let me tell you about this product. I think it would be better if you do like, you know, thanks for that. And people are just like, they love giving feedback. Yeah, everybody loves to give you opinions. But like you said, it takes a lot of focus to keep headstrong keep that feedback coming, still take the right decisions, but keep yourselves open to feedback and discussions. That's really important. So what I want to hear from you now is what are some of the lessons you've learned over the last years, apart from COVID? So I think one of the big ones and I touched earlier on in the conversation was, I think the need to move quick. I think that's important. Coming again from a multinational background, it was a lot of, I guess it's bureaucracy checkpoints, approvals, until you get things done. Because again, for multinationals, they were like risk averse. They didn't want too much risk. Let's make sure everyone signs it and we're good. And then we'll assess it maybe three more times before we move. But here, no, no. Here, if you think about it twice, it's too late. You got to be ready. I heard this saying once. I can't remember who said it. So it was like entrepreneurship is like jumping off a cliff with all your airplane parts and building your plane on the way down. You have to be comfortable with being very uncomfortable and just throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. And you kind of navigate while you're already on course. You can't plan everything and then set sail because even your plan will not happen. You won't hit that plan. So just go and then make sure you navigate when you're already on the way. So that's one of the lessons. Yeah. Absolutely that whole image of building a plane as you're on your way down is so representative of entrepreneurship because you're dealing with new things every single day. 100%. Oh, I'm missing a part. Okay, what do I do? I have to figure this out. Or like, oh, you know, the wing just blew up. Okay, let's figure out how to, for sure. Uh, 100%. You got to think on your feet. Absolutely. Well, think in the air in, in this case. In the air. <laughs> so I want to ask you a question. About, I know very, very recent brand and it's 2020 now. COVID's hit. How has that impacted your business? So first, I want to say that COVID's been tough. And I'm not talking about business. I'm talking about health-wise. I think COVID's been tough for everybody. First and foremost, I just want to wish everyone the best from a health perspective because it goes beyond the economic factors. It's also like health factors, you know. I'm sure everyone knows someone that got affected by COVID. And I think a lot of people also don't realize the psychological impacts that COVID has on like mental health from stress perspective economic or health-wise, but mental health is a big impact. And I think more than ever in the U.S. and around the world, there are a lot of people are like getting into depression and seeing those kind of negative effects on their future. Either their businesses are 
going bankrupt or they see family members getting hit by COVID or they're unsure of the future. And that has a big impact. So I just want to acknowledge that it's not easy. It's tough for everybody. And I'm convinced we're going to make it through it. It's going to make everyone stronger, but it's not an easy time. Now, having said that from business perspective, like everybody or most people, we got impacted. But I think the difference for us, we had to just reframe what this meant. We had a couple of calls, and I think when it was locked down, Zoom calls, the management team and our direct reports tech, we had a big call and we decided that this is going to be an opportunity. It's not going to be a disabler, it's going to be an enabler. And during that time, we actually put out more products than we've done in the last two years from our deep perspective. Not just, yeah. So again, it's the way you frame it. I think everything is just the way you see it. We saw it as an opportunity. There are no distractions now. We're going to be so focused on delivering an output. This is our only priority. Put out these products. And we worked so well and efficiently that now we're just planting the seeds and we're going to bear the fruits of what we've done during the lockdown period. So looking at it from that perspective, that was crucial for our survival. It could have been different. If it was a different leadership team or mentality, we'd be like, okay, let's completely, I don't know, downsize. Let's cut everything. I'm not saying that it's not important to cut the fat off, but like it's important to be lean and efficient. But also it could have been a very depressing spiral. But we kind of reframed it. Like this is how we're going to actually survive. And I think in some ways, you were already set up as a lean team anyways. So I think that was a key, maybe in some ways, a blessing. For sure, it was. It was. But I think everyone rallied around the same mission. Like, we're still out there to deliver, but we want to deliver as a mission perspective. How are we going to make it happen with all this going around us? And we managed to do it. It brought us closer and brought a lot of efficiencies to the team. It actually brought a lot of innovation as well. It's amazing. And you said you launched some amazing, is it brands from within Freaking Healthy or was it the different products? What did you launch during COVID? So during COVID, I think we had over 23 SKUs and there are some more coming out as well. So we launched a snacking essentials range, which is like a snack on the go range. So all that was done actually by a team member here in B&B in Doha, created like a range of 16 SKUs. We still managed to do R&D and we found a very safe way to do also product testing. And yeah, can you imagine like, also like approvals, how that would happen when you're doing it? But we managed to do that and we're about to launch actually some very exciting products. So stay tuned for another two weeks and you'll see something super coming out of Big Nauti. So by the time this episode airs, everyone's obviously going to see the stuff that you're talking about, which is amazing. I can't wait to see it myself. I want to ask you, What's next? I think this is just the beginning for us. If I tell you F&B, it's quite a huge space, right? Right now we're doing healthy snacking. So the future will tell, but there are some very exciting things coming up for Big and Healthy in the near future that it's going to open up, I think, a whole new category for us. So we're really looking at delivering really exciting F&B concepts to the market here in, in the region. And as visions and plans, has any of that changed now after COVID? Or do you still hold true to that idea of healthy snacking? Vision hasn't changed. Probably some strategies might have to be altered and tactics. But I think the vision and mission are still there. That's still what we want to do. And I think that's our North Star, I guess. And it's okay to change it. But like from the beginning, this is what we want to deliver. It's just like how to strategize around 
how to work around COVID. Like we've focused a lot more online since COVID. And again, we didn't put our efforts behind the online before COVID, but during COVID, we really funneled resources. And now we're also seeing the benefits of that. As you talked about going online and then because you're on a tech show, I want to ask you, has technology played a key role in your business? From all aspects. Again, everyone knows about social media. So social media was huge, but also like analytics was important for us. How to analyze it. We launched our online e-shop, so quickandhealthy.com. You can purchase from there. All the analytics that come from there, who are consumers, how often do they purchase, and try to automate where we can. We also had a couple of partners in the market, other online retailers in the market that helped as well. But for us, tech's been very important. And I think for our next big project, tech plays a huge role. So that's also coming. And that's kind of one of the learnings. Like, How do we make sure it's efficient and it's as automated as possible? So the next project that we're launching is pretty tech heavy as well. That's amazing. And talking about success, what's that one secret sauce? I don't know if it's really like one element. I think I like the way you said like secret sauce. So if I think about secret sauce, I would say the sauce has many ingredients, right? So I think there are many ingredients that go into that sauce. I would say first, who's that sauce made for? I think we need to really keep in mind this consumer-centric thinking. That's really important because a lot of times you get kind of lost with like spreadsheets and numbers and this and that for us. It's like, no, let's keep consumer centricity every conversation we have like what's this giving to the consumer what's the benefit etc that's very important so that's our audience right secondly i would say the team i mean the team is crucial a diverse team and i love the diverse thinking i love the diverse backgrounds and being open to opinions and different perspectives even if it's completely against what you're thinking i think that's important like my partnership with Mohammed and Bilal is definitely part of the sauce. It's crucial. And they're very different thinkers than I am, and which is important. It wouldn't be the same recipe if we're all the same. And I think products, I mean, products are given, right? Products are important. But I think I would look at execution. Execution is probably the last piece. Like really excellence in execution in everything you do from every point of that process. And is there a way you drive excellence within Freaking Healthy? Yeah, for sure. I mean, for us, we go by the mantra of, is this a global scale standard? Are we competing on a global level? We're not looking at just regionally or like locally. Are we there? And if we are there, we're happy. And we say, how can we overachieve that? But if we're like, no, we're not global level, then we look at everything from branding, from recipe, from everything. It's very important. The excellence in execution. And we always do this. And I've spoken about this before, especially I do it. I call it like the red face test, which means if something was printed in the newspaper or set on a podcast the next day, would I be embarrassed about it? And if I would be embarrassed about it, I wouldn't do it. We wouldn't launch it. We wouldn't execute it. We would think about it a different way. But if we're like super confident behind it, we're like, yes, that passed the red face test. We go ahead and we do it. I love that. It's such an interesting idea, the red face test. Yeah. <laughs> you should get a patent on that. <laughs> Uh, let me see if no one has it I would I'm going to borrow it <laughs> but I love it the red face test and so that's so interesting to hear right I think we all have these ideas and we have to have some level of benchmark and I think in your own way you've got this benchmark where you say is it past the red face test 
That's amazing. Well, thank you for sharing that. I love that. <laughs> Anytime. We take royalties on that one, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 100%. I want to start to wrap up and I have a few more questions for you. You're on the Elevated Entrepreneur Show and I want to ask you, what does it mean to you to be an Elevated Entrepreneur? I think what it means to me is to always seek more knowledge and to always keep learning. If you think you've arrived, for sure, you haven't arrived. I think for me, it's like being an elevated entrepreneur and being on your podcast is also kind of resonates with the way I think about this. I always believe that I don't know everything and I'm always looking to learn and improve because there's no way I know everything about even our category. There's always new things coming out and always willing to admit that, you know what, you don't know something and willing to learn new skills or understand new concepts or even admitting that you made a mistake. So for me, that is important. And really, I would say just leading, like leading teams is important. And also having people on your team that are as passionate and excited about something you're doing. And they are completely bought in that they're also entrepreneurs. They are the founders of the brand. That for me is when you know you have something really important and you're kind of elevated. So it's not only my mission. It's not my brand. It's everybody's brand. Yeah. I don't know if you know, but when you're talking to me, what came to mind, there's a beer brand called Dos Ecos and the tagline is stay thirsty. And what you said for me, that summed up is staying thirsty, is staying passionate. It all comes to this. If you're thirsty, you're going to get it. 100%. You've already shared so much, but if there was one thing that I'd ask you for, one piece of advice that you would give to entrepreneurs. Maybe there's a couple. One of them is really... Step into your uncomfortable zone. I think it's important as an entrepreneur to be uncomfortable often. If not often, like daily, you have to be uncomfortable. And you have to be kind of resilient to being uncomfortable or the unknown. And I think that's something you need to build. I don't think it's innate. I think you have to build it like a muscle. The more you do it, the more comfortable you become with the unknown uncertainty. Because if you're not willing to venture out, be very tunnel vision, and you're not going to be able to explore or innovate. So I think that's important. And I learned that many years ago from, I think, one of the podcasts I was listening to. And someone said something that kind of stuck. And so every day they do something that makes them uncomfortable, whether it's a simple thing like, I don't know, complimenting a stranger about something, just to put yourself in that position and say, okay, that wasn't so bad. Or like asking for a discount at a coffee shop, which no one gives, just to see, like, I'm willing to do that. And that kind of builds your resilience. I love that. Before we started recording, you talked about listening to a lot of podcasts. I want to ask you, is there a book or a podcast that you'd recommend for other entrepreneurs to listen to or read? There's a couple that come to mind. So one, first of all, yours. Oh, gee, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really nice of you. Thank you. Shameless plug for the Elevated Entrepreneur podcast. No, no, honestly, for sure. It's, it's amazing. It's as if we've been doing it for years. So good job on that. Oh, thank you. There's one by Reid Hoffman. I think he's the one that actually talked about this metaphor about jumping off a cliff. LinkedIn founder. So Masters of Scale. I like another one called Business Wars. It's on Wondery. So it's about wars between two big brands in the same category. And it's like a, usually a multi-episode podcast. It's very interesting. I love Tim Ferriss, the Tim Ferriss show, How I Built This. We talked about that. There was one called The Pitch by Gimlet Media. So those are the ones around like really business and entrepreneur, but I also go into a lot of the Broken Brain podcast by uh, Drew. 
I think those are also like for me, like the mental piece is important. We'll make good show notes and we'll link to all of them. I think part of what we were talking offline is learning is so key. And I always ask everybody to talk about where they've learned from. And it's an amazing resource when you're opening your mind to new experiences and new perspectives. It's a great way to imbibe and learn new things. So thank you for sharing. Last question before we wrap up the show, where can people find you? I'm pretty bad at social media, but I just started recently. So LinkedIn, Roy Coyes or Freaking Healthy. Instagram as well, Roy Coyce. And like, I need to get a bit more involved with my personal social media. But those are the major two. But if you connect to anything freaking healthy, I'll find a way to connect. LinkedIn is probably the best way. Done. We will make sure we link to that in the show notes. And thank you so much, Roy, for being on the show. Pleasure. I really enjoyed it. And thank you. Thank you so much for staying with me till the very end of the episode. You've done it. I've got three specific asks for you. Only if you think that this podcast is worthy of your support and if you've enjoyed the content. My first request is for you to hit the subscribe button. Actually smash that subscribe button so that you can get notified when new episodes come your way. Or if you haven't already, head on over to elevatedentrepreneur.fm and subscribe to the podcast on the website so that new episodes are emailed to you right away. My second request is for you to help me spread the word with your friends and families and business owners that would enjoy this podcast and help elevate them too. You can do that either by leaving a review on your Apple device or just telling your friends how cool this podcast is. And finally, if there's a question that you've been dying to ask me or if there's pieces of feedback that you'd like to give me, head on over to elevatedentrepreneur.fm slash speak where you'll be able to record a voice message that I can listen to and also maybe feature here on the podcast together with my answer. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you, much love and I'll see you in the next one.